Unpacking Injustice with the Montana Innocence Project. This podcast tells the real stories behind wrongful and unjust convictions and illuminates the complex issues responsible for making our criminal justice system unjust. Today we are bringing you the story of Montana Innocence Project client Katie Garding, whose conviction for vehicular homicide was overturned in March. Let's begin unpacking. In this podcast series, we will explore Katie's story. She was wrongfully convicted for a 2008 vehicular homicide after her ex-boyfriend falsely accused her in exchange for leniency in his own case. At her trial, she received ineffective representation when her attorney failed to consult an accident reconstruction expert. In addition to unpacking the innocence issues of incentivized witness testimony and ineffective assistance of counsel, we will look at the real-world impact of wrongful convictions on families and provide a much-anticipated update on where her case stands today. Uh, My name is Katie Garding. I'm 36 years old and I live in Billings, Montana. I was wrongfully convicted of vehicular homicide and also leaving the scene of an accident. I was incarcerated for a total of 10 years in prison. It's been almost 13 years. Those last three years were spent on parole. In April 2023, Katie received the news that a federal district court overturned her conviction. We will unpack the current state of her case in this podcast series, but for now, let's return to the beginning. It was January 1st, 2008. On that night, it was actually New Year's Eve night, and I had recently just turned 21. And so when I grew up being 21 and like bar hopping was a really big deal, of course, I can think of better things now to do with my time. But when I was younger, like it was, it was kind of a thing. And so I was really excited. So my first year being 21, we decided to go out partying, kind of bar hopping, just socializing with friends and meeting new people. That's pretty much what we were doing. I was with my ex now boyfriend at the time and his his sister and friends so the night that we were out partying um we were kind of all over the place in missoula and east missoula wound up uh, running into a random guy that was new and new to town and he was looking for people to party with so we brought him with us hung out with him the rest of the night we had no idea who he was but actually wound up going home with him because when um we had pulled back into missoula to the reds bar Um, When I pulled up, I had actually pulled up in a no parking zone on the curb and there was a bunch of like foot patrol police around and they had approached me and asked me if I'd been drinking. And of course I told them, no, you know, I didn't want them to know that I was drinking. Obviously I had been, it was New Year's Eve night. And so they told me if I got back in my vehicle that night that I would be arrested for a DUI. That's actually when it came out that James was on the run for all of these warrants out of Mississippi and Missouri. He was like, I'm not getting back in your vehicle. The guy that we had ran into actually offered us his couch for the night. So that's how we wound up at his house. James Bordeaux was Katie's boyfriend at the time. Katie and James just started dating. She did not know he was just as involved with multiple outstanding warrants. Katie and James ended their night at Red's bar before crashing on the couch at Paul's house, the guy they met out that night. At the same time, a few miles over in East Missoula, a tragedy occurred. A man named Bronson Parsons was walking along Highway 200 when he was struck and killed in a hit-and-run accident. This is the crime Katie would later be wrongfully convicted of. The next morning, Paul was headed out for a ski trip, so he drove them back to Katie's car, parked outside of Red's bar. 
James had noticed a gun sitting on Paul's kitchen table. Knowing Paul would be out for the day, James wanted to go back to the house and steal the gun. He convinced Katie to drive him. James stole the gun and they continued with their day as planned. So we were actually heading out to the mountains, me and my boyfriend and then his nieces and nephew. We were going up to the mountains just to go kind of hang out for the day. And I had gotten pulled over and they said it was because I had a cracked windshield. I personally thought it had something to do with uh, the burglary and also my I was driving on a suspended license. So I had been pulled over a couple of times. Um, so I feel like they were they kind of like knew about me because um, when I turned 21, you're supposed to get a new license. And I never did that. And so I was driving around on an expired license and had been pulled over and actually went to jail for a couple hours for it a few months prior to this. And so I wasn't sure if it was A, because of the burglary or B, because um, they had just, they had pulled me over in Missoula before for driving without a license. Katie was not pulled over for a suspended license or even the burglary James committed earlier that day. Law enforcement officers who were investigating the vehicular homicide in East Missoula from the night before noticed her cracked windshield. They pulled her over, examined her car, and released her, determining that the damage would have been far more severe had her car caused the accident. However, when officers ran James's license, they saw his out-of-state warrants and arrested him on the spot. My relationship with James was very new. I felt very in love, even though I probably wasn't as in love as I felt at the time. But as far as I knew, everything was really good. Um, we had ju just met. We'd only been together for about a month. But everything was going good so far until up until this night, I guess. After he went to jail, it kind of just hit me that, like, I didn't really know who this guy was at all. And so it's very disturbing in a way to think that you know somebody and then later on find out that they're not who you thought that they were at all. Especially like when it was like your best friend and you were hanging out with them all the time. The vehicular homicide went unsolved for over a year. Katie and James were eventually convicted of the burglary. Having no criminal history, Katie was offered a plea deal of probation with no time served. But James was facing a possible 100-year prison sentence as a persistent felony offender under Montana's three strikes law. I was on. I was offered a plea deal, but because he was in so much trouble, he was offered. He, he was going to spend a lot of time in prison, and so they had offered him a deal to testify against me in court on this other charge because they were still looking for the suspect in the hit and run that happened on New Year's Eve and they gave him a deal to testify against me and I think that's how I started becoming a suspect in the in that case. Katie never thought she would be convicted of the vehicular homicide. She wasn't in East Missoula at the time of the crime and her car only had a small crack on the windshield that was there before she even bought the car. Um, my lawyer was like nope there's no way. Um, she was like there's no evidence against you. She's like, they cannot convict you with not one single ounce of evidence. So when I was found guilty, it was very, it was really sad. I was obviously like, I, I didn't even believe it at first. It took a long time for, for it to actually like hit me that I was convicted of a crime that I didn't commit. Cause that, that whole time I was sitting in jail, I honestly thought that I would be leaving out of the courtroom. For accusing Katie and testifying against her, the state recommended that James receive only a five-year suspended sentence. I think that um, once James had started saying that he would testify against me, it was an easy way to give ease to the victim's minds that we found the person that did this to your son. Um, regardless, they, they did no prior um, research or 
investigating or anything about that night or what we did. They literally, like from my point of view, of course I wasn't on the inside, so I don't know what they did. But from my point of view, they literally listened to what he had to say and was like, okay, perfect. Now we'll just build a case from that, even though we don't know anything. And then I was charged like two days later, charged, and then they built a case. And, you know, instead of trying to build a case, find evidence and then charge somebody, it was like, oh, perfect. We can do this now. We can close this case. Believing she would never be convicted for a crime she didn't commit, when the state offered Katie a plea deal for the vehicular homicide, like many innocent people, she said no. So um, the plea bargaining bargaining process, when I got the phone call that I was going to be convicted of this crime, um, the state had actually offered me a plea before or I was even charged. So they had said that if I had pled guilty to reckless driving resulting in a death, I would probably do five years with four and a half suspended. So I'd spend like six months in a DOC facility, which would be either like a pre-release or a treatment center. And the lawyer that had initially called me, told me that I should probably take that deal because I'd never get another one like that. Um, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take a plea deal for a crime that I didn't commit. And he's like, well, you're probably making a mistake, but left it at that. And then I was charged a couple of days later. Um, never, I never went to jail. Um, initially I was, um, out of my own recognizances and then I got in trouble because I was on probation and I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And I got put in jail. And once I was in jail, they, um, the trial is starts, you know, you have, they have like six months to make, like, complete the trial and so that's when the plea deals start coming in because they don't really want to go to trial because it takes time it costs money um and that sort of thing and so really they just kind of started me started offering me plea deals um I think the next one they offered me was like 10 years with eight suspended and then another 10 years with I can't remember how many suspended and I didn't take any of them and then I remember my lawyer coming to me the day of my trial and she's like okay the prosecutors just want to know like what will you take so we don't have to go through with this in the trial. And I said, I'll, I'll take a DUI because that's what I was guilty of that night is a DUI and driving without a license. And they, of course, obviously didn't like that answer. So then we went to trial after that. Katie was assigned a public defender whose trial strategy was to undermine James's testimony by showing it was incentivized. Although she cross-examined the state's law enforcement witnesses who theorized about how Katie's vehicle was the striking vehicle in the accident, Katie's public defender failed to consult an accident reconstruction expert to argue it was not Katie's vehicle. The trial process um, is is pretty intimidating if you've never been in a courtroom before for any sort of thing. Um, you know, they spend a few days like talking about what a horrible person you are and all of these things that you've done wrong and and why you should go to prison. And so that was pretty hard to sit there and watch. And then, you know, they give you a chance to get up on the stand. And I opted to get up on the stand so I could speak for myself, which was extremely um, overwhelming <laughs> and scary, I guess is a good word for it. I was terrified. But I thought that, you know, that would be my best chance of actually you know, not getting convicted of a crime that I didn't commit is if I went up there and spoke for myself, which obviously in the end didn't work anyways. Um, so then um, after they go through, th it depends on, you know, how much evidence they have, but three or four days of questions and answers and witnesses and that sort of thing, um, the jury of my peers, which is 12 people, 
they got together and decided whether I was guilty or not. And then um, sentencing. So then obviously I was found guilty. Um, sentencing, I wasn't that nervous because they're like people, you never, you'll never get like more than 20 years or anything like that. And when I got sentenced and he sentenced me to my max, which was 30 years for the vehicular homicide and 10 years for leaving the scene of an accident to run consecutive, just kind of blew me away. So that's 40, 40 years. And so that was kind of, that was kind of hard. I accepted it fairly quickly because being in prison um there's not a lot of things you can control and so like the way that you spend your time and your thinking is the only thing that you actually have and so if I would have fought that conviction I feel like my time in prison would have been even harder than it already was so I accepted it probably just a few weeks after I was actually convicted and things were moving along and um I was probably about to go to sentencing and then I was like you know what I'm, pro I'm going to prison for a long time and then once you accept it, it's just kind of, it just makes your mind more at ease because you can't fight what you can't control. I was scared. I was really scared before I got to the prison because I'd always heard horror stories. And then you watch all those shows on TV um, and never really being there. And then once I got there, um, I realized it wasn't as horrifying as I thought it was going to be. So as far as me and my safety, I didn't feel any concern, but I always worried about my family because they, they would travel from Missoula to Billings almost once a month even when the roads were bad to come visit me so I always worried about them and like their safety I didn't talk about it a lot there was a few people that I did share my story with um when you get to prison um the crimes that you committed and like your time isn't like something that's like spoke about and I didn't know how people were going to accept that because they didn't know me. And so that wasn't something that was just like, yep. Oh yeah. I'm not, I didn't commit this crime. And so I didn't want to go in there like with an arrogant kind of, um, so I was very humble about it. And then I think after I was there for a couple of years, I kind of started talking about it to a few people and because they knew me, they believed me. But I think if I would have went into prison with like, I shouldn't even be here. I think that my whole experience would have been differently because I think the girls and the staff would have treated me differently. So even though like you, you want to shout out from your lungs that you're not supposed to be there. I think the way that I did it in the long run um, actually helped me with the time that I had to spend there. Before being wrongfully convicted, Katie had faith in the criminal legal system. I always thought that what they did was right and that police were there to protect us and I didn't think that people were in prison for crimes that they didn't commit, that's for sure. Her perspective is entirely different now. I think that it needs to be revamped. Um, I don't think that the way they, I think the way they do things is very old school. Things are very different now. I think if you go through um, a trial, it's very prejudiced. Um, you know, you're, you're put, pretty much put on the stand, which with people, like if you would have pulled me off the street and told me I had to be a jury member, making a decision whether somebody did it or not, even though I was still confused on what even happened, I don't think is very fair to people. Because of her experience, Katie is especially critical of the plea bargaining process and its coercive nature. It's just an easy way to get people convicted of crimes, in my in my opinion. I'm sure a lot of it is justified, but there's there's stuff that you know, they hand out years to people that like candy, like they just, they just put people away in a building for years and years and years for sometimes very frivolous things. 
so I think it's just an easy tactic for them um, to obviously, again, not look at the evidence. They're like, hey, we're pretty sure you did this. You should probably tell us that you did and we'll give you less time than what you could actually get. So it's almost like a game to them because I don't know like where the numbers are made up from or where they come, but you could do 30 years. But if you just say, yes, I did this, then I'll only give you five and then look at the next 15 years you'll have for yourself. And of course, that like that's going to work on most people. You know, if I had convicted this crime, I would have definitely taken a plea deal. There would have been no question. Yep, absolutely. Because I would have been scared to do more time. It angers me in a way because I don't think they realize how many lives they affect when they do that. And I'm not the only one. That's the unfortunate thing. Like it didn't just stop with me and it didn't start with me because this has obviously been going on for a very long time, you know, and, and they, they got paid to do that, you know, and they, they get paid for a certain job and they took the easy way out. And I just don't think it's fair. During her first year of wrongful incarceration, Katie applied to be a Montana Innocence Project client. So my lawyer at the time, who was my trial lawyer, knew about the Montana Innocence Project. And she was the one that initially got in touch with them and told them about my case. And so they did show interest. I wound up filling out an application and kind of telling them about myself and why I think I should be a client. Um, and then after they do some some of their own research and evidence building, um, they decide after that whether they're going to take you on as a client. In the coming episodes, we will unpack Katie's fight for her innocence. But for now, let's get to know Katie a little bit more. At the time she was wrongfully convicted, Katie had a young son named Carson and was pregnant with her second. So Carson was pretty young um, when this happened. He's almost 21 now. You know, we well, of course, we never really thought that I was going to go to prison. But I'm just thankful that I had my parents because they were the ones that kept him when this did happen, which was you know, it was not an easy thing to go through for either any of us, but, for, you know, for him. And he's pretty confused now. And now he he pretty much hates cops because, you know, because of this happened to me, which is unfortunate for them because it's not all their faults. But I guess I was very fortunate that I had my family to keep Carson because I think a lot of women don't have that kind of support. And so, you know, being incarcerated and being a mom is sometimes can be very, very hard because obviously somebody else is raising your kid. But I was so thankful to have to have them and to make, you know, that he was in a loving home and I knew exactly where he was. But I guess it's just never really easy. Um, you know, you kind of have to let that part of yourself go because you cannot be there for any, you know, any of that kind of stuff. So that was probably the hardest part. Before I was charged and even knew that I was a suspect in the vehicular homicide, I was pregnant with obviously a baby. I don't know where I was going. <laughs> obviously it was a baby. Um, yeah. So I was pregnant a few months into my pregnancy is when I found out that I was a suspect. And then that I was also being charged with the vehicular homicide. And so at that time, I think I was about six months pregnant. You know, I talked to my parents about it and we thought that it would probably be best to give him up for adoption because we weren't sure what was going to happen. And not that he would have ever been a burden to my family, but I just didn't want to put that on them. And my aunt's niece was actually had just filed her paperwork to adopt a baby. And so it just kind of worked out perfectly. So like they were looking to adopt and then I, this had all happened to me. And so he, he's actually still in the family with my, I guess, cousin, I guess, cousin by marriage. <laughs> 
Um, and so, yeah, so once, you know, once I found out I was being charged, I made the decision to give him up for adoption. She sends me pictures, um, you know, and I'll, you know, like on birthdays and stuff, I'll say happy birthday, but it's not a lot of contact. Aside from being a mom at the time of her wrongful conviction, Katie was just a normal young woman figuring out life. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I was very, still very young, um, trying to find my way in the world because you just never really know what, what you want when you're that young. Um, so, you know, I had two dogs at the time. I did have a boyfriend, had a job, you know, just kind of do like the normal things kids do, I guess. At the time, well, I still kind of am. I really love photography. Um, I loved animals. I didn't really do anything um, as far as like career rise with either of those, which I wish I had. But yeah, I, I enjoyed taking pictures, um, being in the mountains, camping, to like tubing the river, floating the river, that sort of thing. We Like every summer we were up at the lake or, you know, we were always doing something every weekend, I'm sure. Um, there wasn't anything like special about what I did. I was just living my life. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Katie's story. This series was produced by Alberton High School students Cheyenne Deneen and Raylene Zerp-Davis. In the next episode, we will dive into the innocence issues in Katie's case through a discussion with the Montana Innocence Project's legal director, Katie Carpenter. Unpacking Injustice is a Montana Innocence Project podcast. The artwork was created by Rob Truax, and the music was composed by Corey Fay. To learn more about the Montana Innocence Project, visit our website, mtinnocenceproject.org, or follow us on social media at Big Sky Innocence. To submit a case, visit our website and click on the Request Legal Assistance tab. Thank you for Unpacking Injustice with the Montana Innocence Project.